So here we go for today. So we're continuing our Guide to the Psalms series. On the front page is, the whole front page is taken up with a review of the past six messages. And I'm not going to give much time to that. The, we, the first message, uh, if you didn't hear that, you should get, get the outline and listen to the podcast. Uh, we broke our t- typical format of two-page outline, and I made a four-page outline because it was quotations from the New Testament of the Psalms. And I would have had to go to six or eight pages if I were to put all the times the New Testament quotes the Psalms. So if you say the Psalms are not that important, then you're saying the Bible's not that important. And I suppose if you don't know the Lord, maybe the Bible's not that important to you. But if you're a Christian, the Bible's the most important thing in your life, uh, especially in terms of how it helps you know Jesus And most of the quotations of the Psalms in the New Testament are from what would be called the royal or kingship Psalms that we're going to discuss today, and uh, or sometimes called messianic Psalms, and they are foreshadowings uh, through King David and King Solomon uh, of the coming of the Christ or the Messiah, the King of Kings, the true King. And so the New Testament writers are constantly pointing out that this true king the Psalms were talking about was Jesus. So if you want to know Jesus, I'd encourage you to read the New Testament and the Psalms (laughs) as a starting point, Uh, among other places. All right, chapter 2, we looked at the whole idea of the five books of biblical wisdom literature. Now, biblical poetry and biblical wisdom literature, some people... Uh, You know, there's no reason to quibble about these things because organizing your thoughts is not inspired necessarily. It's just a way to organize your thoughts. So I would call the five biblical books of poetry the the wisdom literature. But some would differentiate that, say, a lot of the Psalms is not necessarily wisdom literature. As we're going to look at genres of Psalms today, some of the Psalms fall in other genres other than wisdom. But... um, I think, there's, uh, I think there's reasons why, and hopefully you'll, by the end of today you'll know, why I, I think it's better just to say the poetical books are the wisdom books, pure and simple, they're the same. For one thing, it helps, helps you organize your thoughts better, because then you know Job, Psalms, Ecclesiastes, Song of, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, and Ecclesiastes, what am I leaving out, anything, uh, are, are the five wisdom books. If you... Uh, are from a Roman Catholic tradition or, or whatever uh, that has the six apocryphal books that were added after the Reformation. It's interesting, the Catholic Church did not have those books, but the Catholics have an idea that, that truth is still on, on, uh, evolving. And so uh, they added those books later, and, and that theology doesn't necessarily see a problem with that, whereas Protestant theology would be big on uh, where in Jude, he, he says to contend earnestly for the faith that's been once and for all delivered to the saints. And we would say after the apostles died in 70 AD, what they considered to be the canon was formally recognized a few centuries later as far as the New Testament book, but it was being, it was really recognized while the apostles were still alive. Peter calls Paul's writing scripture, and all the churches were using those books. There just wasn't a formal list accepted by all churches until uh, various heretics like Marcion uh, forced the church to declare which books it was uh, acknowledging as the, and of course, uh, the famous, um, starts with an A, 
not Ambrose, earlier than that. Uh, Athanasius, thank you. Lost it. I've been, been having a hard time bringing up the name Athanasius in my mind in general lately. But Athanasius wrote a letter endorsing the 27 books we use today. But what's one of the important things to see is that Jesus and the apostles all accepted the, the 39 books that we call the, the Old Testament today, that I call the Hebrew Scriptures, and that was, that was from uh, the, the Sanhedrin deciding on which books should be considered canonical over 100 years before Christ came. And Christ never disputed that. All his disputes with the Pharisees and Sadducees are clearly about how to interpret those books, not that they disagreed about which books. That's very important. All right, so um, chapter 3, we talked about biblical imagery. If you've been going to this church any time, you should know that, that symbolism or biblical imagery is a very, very important subject. If you were to think of the biblical word pictures of Jesus, for instance, if you couldn't come up with 50 of them, then you probably haven't read much Bible. Uh, you, you know what? Uh, when I first put together a, a teaching, when I was teaching at Bethel Christian Assembly back around the year 2001 or something, I, I decided to do biblical images of Jesus, ended up taking me three messages, and I thought of 55 biblical images of Jesus in about a half hour's time. And uh, um, that's what I've always liked. There's a poster you can get that has a lot of the names of Jesus with a, in real small print. The scripture comes from underneath it. You know, We used to have that in the uh, toddler's room at the old church. Anyway, so hopefully you know a lot about biblical imagery and why it's important. And it's very important to see that the images go from Genesis to Revelation. And so uh, Jesus, when he says, I'm the vine, for instance, he's standing in the prophetic tradition quite intentionally. Okay, and uh, uh, what he's saying is, I'm the true Israel. I'm the true son of God, and it's only through me that you can be the proper vineyard you are supposed to be. So uh, we looked at parallelisms and what they are. Then we looked at eight literary devices. Then we looked at categories of parallelism. So flip over. Today we're going to go to, uh, I'm going to go over here so I can see the clock because I don't like the digital one. Uh, we're going to look at psalm genre. So... Um, what I'm actually using is six of the eight that I'm going to tell you in the next couple of weeks are actually from the Reform Study Bible in its introduction to the Psalms. However, I'm also reading a book by a professor at Cedarville University about the Psalms. His categories overlap. He doesn't have all eight of them, but he does overlap quite a bit. Uh, occasionally have a, like a different name for the same thing. I've tried to put uh, the different names in uh, brackets there or whatever. Uh, so again, keep in mind, if you were to read someone else's book on the Psalms, you might have some different categories. But uh, pretty much you do get these ones. And nevertheless, the categories themselves aren't inspired. They're just a way to help us organize our thinking. Okay, so like don't fight anybody about what the categories should be called or whether they're six or eight or, or anything like that. It's just a way to help you organize your thinking. Okay, and I did not follow 
the order that the Reformed Study Bible puts them in for uh, reasons that hopefully will become clear as we talk. All right, so uh, the last one in the Reformed Study Bible I put first because I think it's the most important, and it's, it's that this uh, what they call the Wisdom Psalms. Now, uh, CF period just means compare, and of course. Uh, if you want to get straight wisdom literature, read the book of Proverbs, something I highly recommend that you do in your first 10 or 20 years of being a Christian is to read the proverb that matches the date of the month. So today is what, the 15th. So today you would read Proverbs 15. And I used to use a tally system in my Bible. So about halfway through the year, I would start, like if it, today was Proverbs 15, for instance, I would uh, look at Proverbs 15, see how many tallies, then I'd look at 14 and 16, and if one of them had like seven tallies and one just had three, I would just switch to the one that I needed to catch up a little so that it would always, by the end of the year, come out about the same. And since I'm not perfectly faithful like you guys are, uh, what, what my hope was is if you're faithful uh, three out of four days uh, to read to read your proverb for the day, you'll read Proverbs nine times in a year. If you're faithful two out of three days, you'll read Proverbs eight times a year. And I would always try to read it eight or nine times a year, every, every proverb. The main reason I did was because of what we said. Remember when we talked about parallelism, we talked about the, the idea of an antithetical or opposite parallelism. And Proverbs does a lot of that, and it says the wise man is this, and so wisdom literature is always talking about the path of the wise uh, versus the path of the foolish. And in the wisdom literature, wisdom and righteousness are equivalent, and foolishness and wickedness are equivalent. So it, what the Proverbs is saying is it's foolish to be wicked, and it's wicked to be foolish. And actually that second statement is actually more important uh, for most modern people because we have a kind of an idea that it's a, like a certain level of foolishness if it comes out of lack of education or naivety is okay. But naivety is actually wicked. Uh, it's very wonderful for a little three-year-old granddaughter to be, to be a little bit naive about some things in life because there's age-appropriate levels of learning certain things. But it's not that appropriate for an 18-year-old to be a little bit unaware of lots of things in life, if that makes sense. And in fact, it's actually quite foolish to be unaware of those things. If you're at the level where you uh, are not under your parents' care all the time and you're starting to take care of yourself, then you need a commensurate understanding that the world is not all godly and that certain people should be watched out for. Uh, hope to God that we can protect our kids and keep them in church, good churches and good fellowships so you, they don't need to know that when they're seven. But they do need to know that when they're teenagers. And that's, you know, so wisdom, uh, foolishness is actually is a wicked thing. At a certain point, you should understand how to manage money and how to fear God and how to uh, avoid evil and not take the path near the sinners and so forth. All right, so anyway, wisdom uh, is, is a, a category of psalms 
And part of the reason I list it first is because Psalm 1 is a wisdom psalm. We're going to I don't know if we're going to look at Psalm 1 in any detail today, but we will eventually. Um, I'm within probably a couple weeks, maybe three weeks or so, of just starting to use all we've learned about the Psalms to analyze. Oh, we're probably going to analyze around 30 Psalms. And uh, we're going to use everything we've learned about imagery and parallelisms and uh, all that kind of stuff to, uh, to read 30 or so in, uh, favorite Psalms. And, uh, and, and analyze them together. So, again, uh, Psalm, 19, or Psalm 119 is a wisdom psalm. And I actually think that Psalm 1 is quite intentionally with Psalm 2 uh, the, the proper place to read. You know, the, the people who put the psalms together, at some point, you know, of course, they were written mostly by David, sons of Korah, sons of Aphaph. Uh, one was written by Moses, one uh, Solomon. Uh, 70, Psalm 72 was probably written by Solomon. But at some point, someone kind of put them together. And they put them together in five books, which we'll look at in an upcoming week soon. Why? And the five books have a little structure to them of themselves. And uh, so every one of the five books ends with a psalm of worship or praise. And Psalm 1 or, and 2 are intentionally put there as like, this is the key you need to interpret all the psalms. Okay, so of all the Psalms, you should know Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 the most because Psalm 1 and 2 is actually the grid whereby you should read all the Psalms. And so Psalm 1 mostly contrasts the man of blessedness, that is the man of wisdom, the man of, on the path of righteousness, verses 1, 2, and 3, with the man of wickedness or foolishness, verses 4 and 5. And then in Psalm 1-6 summarize it by telling us in the first half of verse 6 another statement about the righteous man. And in the second half of verse 6 another statement about the wicked man or the foolish man. Okay? And so um, a lot of people these days don't include the Psalms as wisdom literature unless it's the wisdom Psalms but there's one particular foolishness to that, and that is this. The main idea in Hebrew wisdom literature about the, the fear about wisdom is wisdom begins with the fear of God. And uh, what's, oh, what's that thing they say now? Like, like news alert, but they... Uh, no, there's something else they say. Where, like, what's that? Something they say, uh, like, what is it? No. Oh, well. Like, flash, like, oh, you know, when you, oh, spoiler alert, spoiler alert. <laughs> that's, the one I'm, that's the one I'm trying to think of. My brain doesn't work that as well as it should. Uh, <laughs> but now I forgot what I was going to do a spoiler alert about. <laughs> Hopefully I can get back on track here. Um, so I was, I, I was going to say spoiler alert. The fear of God and the love of God are the same thing. And they're actually two sides of the same stick. You can't fear God without loving God, and you can't love God without fearing God. It's much like marriage. <laughs> you, you can't, if you don't fear your wife, you don't love your wife. <laughs> no, just, and there's some, there's actually, 
in, in a good way. Here's, here's what I actually mean by that. This morning, uh, I had to get up early yesterday morning, uh, even though I went to bed at 3 or 4 in the morning Friday night. I had to get up for a Skype call. At, uh, I guess it was, uh, I got, got up about 9 for a Skype call at 10. And uh, then last night, I got to bed about midnight and had to get up at 3. So when my alarm went off, uh, I hit the snooze alarm. But then I started thinking about Catherine. And I started thinking, not that it would make her mad, because she's not, she's a very easy compared to most wives in that respect. I don't know most wives, but I've, my guess is that she's about as easy as you could get with that. But I thought, I don't want to have the snooze alarm go off again and wake her up unnecessarily. And that was the only reason I didn't do the snooze alarm for like a whole hour. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so actually, the fear of God and the love of God really are one and the same. Because uh, if I had let the snooze alarm go off enough times, Catherine probably would have got upset. <laughs> Although usually she starts with a level like, are you going to get up? <laughs> you know, like, or are you just going to keep hitting the snooze alarm? Just trying to make sure it works properly. <laughs> so, um, so uh, fearing God and loving God is the beginning of wisdom. And the Psalms are all about how to relate to God. The Psalms are really, you know, most of Scripture is in a sense from God to us. But the Psalms are godly men worshiping God praying to God, seeking God, uh, declaring the, the, you know, the, the redemptive acts of God, and so forth. And so I actually believe the Psalms is a super rock bed foundation of all wisdom. I have a good friend named Pastor Dan Brown and Pastor's Bethel Christian Assembly, and he reads the whole Psalms every month and has for many years. Five a day, 30 days of the month. I don't know what it is on the months that have 31 days, but, <laughs> uh, but um, I never asked him. So, um, so the, the wisdom literature contrasts the, the ways or the paths of the wise or the paths of fools. We said that. It recommends or endorses or values the fear of the Lord, and uh, it gives practical lifestyle advice. Wisdom is, how, is, is your lifestyle decisions. You know, they're running a lot of commercials for a particular uh, type of loan that they're trying to appeal to college graduates to get because many, many, many college graduates have ignored the scriptures and gone into far too much debt to go to college. And so uh, they're actually saying that a lot of college graduates are going to still be in debt to their student loans when they die. And uh, the Bible's very cautious about that, especially in the Proverbs and the Psalms. And um, the truth of the matter is the borrower becomes the slender slave. Think about it. When, you're, when, you're, uh, when you have payments to make, you're working for the people you're making the payments to. Now, does the Bible allow for debt? Yes. Short-term debt. That's why when our country was le less ungodly, do you know that up until the 1930s, the maximum length home loan you could get was five years in America? 
Today, you can get seven-year car loans. I wouldn't be surprised if there's eight-year car loans. Is there such a thing yet? But Barry says yes. Wow, that's a, what, amazing. Um, so I, I'm so glad that, that I was, uh, you know, became a Christian when I was age 17 and went to a church that taught the Bible's views of, of, of how to handle money. I've not done as well as I should in investments, but I've never allowed myself to get too much into debt. And I've never paid interest on a credit card instead of the whole, you know, I use credit cards because they're convenient, but we pay 100% of them every month. And I would really encourage you when it comes to student loans, what the Bible does endorse is investment debt. So if you're uh, going to get student loans and major in utter, underwater basket weaving or sociology or psychology or something else that's not a path towards actual vocational jobs, that's foolishness. But if you're going to be a doctor or an engineer, then that's a calculated investment. But I would still encourage you to keep your debt structure as low as you can. Don't just get extra student loans so you can go to the Bahamas a lot more often while you're you know, going to college, which people do. People get student loans so they can have a cooler car. So that was, all that was no extra charge. But that's the type of things that Psalms and Proverbs actually address in the wisdom literature. How to be wise in every area. You know, the first eight or so... Uh, chapters of Proverbs is, how, is all about how to avoid sexual sin, which will save you a lot of grief. All right, second kind of psalms is hymns, or, or I would call them psalms of praise or hymns of praise. So some of the uh, uh, characteristics, and there's a list of them, the ones that are in bold print or underline are the ones I actually want to talk about but just looking at how I'm doing with time so far, I'm probably not going to be able to open those up today. But we're going to stay on this for two or three Sundays, and I, and I probably will uh, open up the ones that are bold and underlined. Um, we won't do all of Psalm 119, I promise. <laughs> the longest chapter in the Bible. So uh, most of the uh, psalms of hymns, uh, or the hymns or psalms of praise, by the way, there are Christian traditions, by the way, that believe you should sing the whole psalms, and they don't like the fact that we lift uh, song, lines out of the psalms to write our worship songs without including the whole psalm. There are some Christians that have that way of thinking, and it's not necessarily uh, to be despised. At least it's worth understanding why they think that way. Um, so, so the hymns tend to have enthusiastic praise or worship to God. And they tend to be for two things. Praise for who he is. Um, and I always say that the difference between praise and worship is, is thanksgiving leads to praise, praise leads to worship. And worship is when you're beholding the glory of the Lord and you're telling him what you see. You're, you're worshiping him for who he is. That's why, even though it drives most of the worship leaders nuts, I change so many of the he's to use when I'm singing them because I'm singing them to God, not to Daniel Williams. He's asked me not to sing to him because he said, 
I don't sing that well. <laughs> He's, he said if I take voice lessons, he might let me sing to him, but probably not. <laughs> so, uh, um, so uh, praise for who he is, and then praise for what he has done. Uh, so God has done miraculous demonstrations of his glory, of his power, of his redemptive acts, of his covenant loyalty uh, to Israel. And the Psalms often recount that back to the Lord. Much like, uh, you know, in, in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen was on trial before the Sanhedrin, and he preached a wonderful sermon to them that they liked so much that they ordered 50 copies, and then they stoned him to death. <laughs> I don't think they ordered any copies, actually. But uh, <laughs> that was... But maybe eventually they will. But uh, <laughs> but uh, they didn't they, they didn't enjoy the message that much. Uh, you know, some people don't like my messages. Stevens was rather poorly received. Uh, you know, I've never been stoned to death yet. Afterwards, I've, you know, just had a few people throw bottles at me or whatever. But uh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But uh, you know, what does Stephen do? He just stands in the traditions of the Psalms. And he recounts all the redemptive, salvific acts of God throughout the history of Israel. And then he says that, that wonderful how to win friends and influence people, warm camaraderie kind of thing of saying, you're just like your fathers. They stoned the prophets and killed those who were sent to them, and you're just filling up the measure of their wickedness. You guys are really wicked. They were, they were like very enthusiastic to hear that. <laughs> so a lot of the Psalms uh, praise God for what he's done in history. I should probably have the word history on there somewhere. Now, if you don't know Exodus 19, 5 through 6, like just off the top of your head, that would be one you should memorize and know. Uh, and that's when God, uh, that's quoted, by the way, in 1 Peter 2, 9 by Peter. And he applies it to the church. So there's this whole uh, kind of theology in, in what's called dispensationalism and stuff that doesn't believe that the promises to Israel are now be belong to the church. But the scriptures clearly say that it does by quoting many, many quotes about Israel and, and applying those to the church in books like Hebrews and 1 Peter and so forth. And it's a, an idea called replacement theology that now the church replaces Israel as the people of God. That's the true meaning of Matthew 23, 24, and 25. Uh, not anything to do with the end times. It was about the end of Jerusalem and Judea as the people of God. That, and, because, and God used a whole generation to birth the church into the earth to become his people before he completely finished destroying off uh, the, his, the old covenant people of Israel. And so, um, um, you know, so God is, is always doing these powerful redemptive acts, and the Psalms are quite a bit about that. In Exodus 19, 5, 6, he says, If you indeed... Obey my voice and keep my commandments, all of them. Oops, that's, a, of course, just part of dispensationalism is an idea called antinomianism. 
So he's saying if you don't do that stuff that they teach at Christian Bible colleges today, uh, you, you would, uh, you'll be my special treasure in, in the earth. And uh, what, he's, what he's saying is, I have always intended from all eternity to have a covenant people who are my people. And in salvation and redemption, he doesn't just save you like modern salvation. I'm amazed how many times people teach Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 as an introduction to salvation and apply that individualistically when the rest of the chapter, 11 through 22, is all about how that grafts you into being a people, part of the temple of God, part of the new Israel, uh, that he breaks down the dividing wall. You know, today uh, I've been uh, having a... um, very good, some very good Bible talks with a particular young man at Wright State who's from another country. And uh, his main objection to coming to our church is that he already goes to another church that's just people from his country, and he doesn't really want to go to a church. Uh, but the, the, the most important idea in the whole New Testament is that when you become a Christian, you become a family with all the other Christians, And it doesn't matter if they were born in Israel, if they were born in Ethiopia, if they were born in Alaska, uh, Ohio, or some weird place like that. Uh, (laughs) Well, that's what Sam and Liz told me. People from Ohio are really weird. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Uh, God only loves the people from Indiana, you know. No. uh, (laughs) No. No, you know, like, it doesn't matter if you're black, white, fat, skinny, tall, light skin, yellow skin, red skin, you know, uh, hopefully you have skin. Uh, <laughs> that comes in handy. And, and, that, if, and that is too much the basis of fellowship today among, among people who call themselves Christians. And that is a spitting in Christ's face, frankly. That is the biggest abomination in the church today. Because that's the whole point of the New Testament is Christ died to to break down that wall, those walls. You know, uh, I am so happy that we ended up doing uh, Sam and Amber's wedding in two languages. And I hope we, uh, from now on, whenever we have, uh, whenever we have uh, uh, weddings, where the people speak more than one language, we're going to do them in two languages. Because, uh, you know what? It, that's more friendly to the people who, if English isn't their first language, that have come to the wedding. And that's the way it should be. So, anyway, let's move on. Most uh, hymns have three sections. A call to worship. Lots of churches have noticed that over the years. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't read a lot of books about the Bible. And so I, I came to see that was the structure of the Psalms when I could have just read a book on the Psalms and would have known that from the time I was a young Christian. But I eventually came to understand that by just analyzing the Psalms. And, uh, but it's actually in all the books about the Psalms. Uh, I didn't know that. And, uh, and lots, of, lots of Christian uh, traditions start their worship service with a call to worship. And that should include confessing our sins and preparing our heart and stop worrying about other stuff. Uh, that's why, frankly, it's, it's wrong to be late to worship. Now, I'd rather you came late than never, but uh, it actually 
is part of teamwork to enter the, court, the presence of God together. And everyone should either in the night before or that morning, you know, I don't know if you want to do this at McDonald's or in your study or whatever. You know, some people, McDonald's is an abomination. But, <laughs> but spend some time preparing your heart to worship. Don't come in carrying all your worries and all your fears and all your things. Get, be, get those before the Lord before you come. You know, you can do some of that while you're driving here. Third, kind, third genre is called laments. And that's a word I actually use a lot in conversation, but uh, it's probably not a common word today. Um, so there's actually a book called Lamentations that's in the same tradition. Lamentations is considered one of the five major prophets, even though it's only five chapters and it's very short. That uh, fools some people. They go, why when, you know, like Hosea has 12 chapters or is it 14, something like that? And uh, so many of the minor prophets have anywhere from 9 to 14 chapters. Why is it that, and of course, Daniel only has, what, 12 or 14, something like that? And why are they considered major prophets? It's more a statement about their being major in terms of what they're bringing to the table. And Lamentations is written by Jeremiah. That's why. But Lamentations is a tremendous, uh, tremendous book. It has a couple of my most important life verses. One is, it's good to, to bear the yoke in your youth, which I guess is sort of fading on me now. But, uh, <laughs> but I used to pay a lot of attention to that. <laughs> uh, pay the price when you're young. And uh, so, so, Psalms of Lament, there's a whole list of them there under point C. And uh, the, the three that are in bold print we'll look at more closely in weeks to come. Number one, uh, they express times or seasons of sorrow or loss or great grief. Now, I want to say this here. Uh, they help you. In Colossians 1.24, Paul says that he does what he can to fill up the measure of what is lacking in, uh, the, uh, in the sufferings of Christ. And there's nothing lacking in the suffering of Christ at all. So what does he mean in, those, in that verse? There's a lot lacking in our participation in it. And something I've come to appreciate more and more and more, and it's actually my favorite part of life, is sorrow and suffering. It's my most favorite part of life. My Christian life started with the death of my closest brother. Uh, when we first got started going out to witness on the campus in Bowling Green, uh, well, we used to do it in the early 70s. We had gotten away from it. We went back to doing it. And uh, in January 27, 1981, the phone rang. It was my brother telling me my best friend had just been killed in an accident, who I had witnessed to many times, but he had not become a Christian. Uh, you know what? Life has sorrow. Life has pain. And what I, the, I'm not, uh, I hopefully, uh, you know, psychologists could probably weigh in on this better. Maybe I am weird. <laughs> Some people think so. Um, <laughs> but I actually think it just, th th what I've come to appreciate about sorrow and suffering is 
it's part of knowing God. God the Father had to send God the Son to die for our sins. And there was no greater grief in the whole cosmos, nor could there be, than when Jesus said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Which he was telling us, read Psalm 22. Whenever you quote the first verse of a, of a psalm, it's a reference to the whole psalm in the Bible. Jesus was actually giving us a clue. If you want to understand what I'm going through on the cross, read Psalm 22. And so, um, I honestly think that disappointment, you know, getting fired, what, what have you, a kid you raised doesn't turn out to walk with God, there's, there's lots of sorrow in life. I mean, Logan's a Michigan fan, poor guy. <laughs> yeah, lots of sorrow in life. But that's how you fill up the measure of, of Christ's sufferings. By rooting for Michigan. No. Uh, <laughs> and having to go to the Michigan-Ohio State party at my house every year. <laughs> no. Uh, so really, I, uh, all kidding aside, um, this, in, the, in the, the Psalms of Lament, there's usually three sections, they ex- or three points. They express times or seasons of sorrow, loss, or grief. The psalmist honestly pours out his pain-filled heart, even sometimes you might say his complaint. And uh, there's lots of places in the Bible that warn us about complaining, right? But it's one thing if you complain to Daniel Williams and Adam Furlow, and they tell you, I'm not that interested in your complaint. <laughs> but, but if you complain to God, God is interested in talking to you about it. Um, and so uh, normally the Psalms of Lament end with an expression of faith or trust or confidence in God's ultimate rescue and his redemption. I can, you know, one of the reasons I've come to love suffering is because I'm a very wicked man. And if it hadn't been for God's chastisements, if I have any degree of godliness or sanctification or love for God, it's because God beat the stuffing out of me because he loves me. And some of the greatest hard things I've gone through have been the most blessed things by, by far. There, I, I have grown 10 times more the diff- through the difficult times than the, than the blessing times. And they are so much more valuable than everything going well. I hope that didn't dampen anybody's day because we're going to celebrate what God's done for us in the last year in the 1030 service. But I, I, I do, I love suffering. Not when it's happening usually. <laughs> so, all right, let's keep going. Uh, I'm almost out of time, so we'll try to do one more and then we'll stop. Thanksgiving or praise? Um, Thanksgiving Psalms. Uh, some people would include them under hymns. Uh, or a praise, which was the second category I think I listed. And um, some would under, put them under laments, which was the third, but that's the problem, is they kind of go under both. So normally the difference is this. The thanksgiving or the praise is more for personal recent salvations and intervention 
than it is for God's covenant faithfulness to his overall people. Does that make sense? It's more, more individualistic, usually. And it's more recent, usually. Uh, the three sections uh, are normally very similar to the three sections of a hymn or praise. Uh, it, it opens with a declaration of intent to give thanks and to keep giving thanks. Uh, then it, re, re, you know, as a recollection of the trouble the psalmist is going through, often using the language or structure that you'd expect in a psalm of lament. But then it concludes by renewing our, an expression of thanksgiving. And so it's ultimately uh, a very positive faith in, in God. And uh, if you're ever going to make any great progress in God, you, you have to have many experiences of what I call naked faith, where things look so bad. You're so addicted to depression, uh, panic attacks, uh, pornography, anger management issues. You know, there, there was a time when I had anger management issues so badly that it was quite offensive to a lot of people. Um, I get on the border of getting angry a few times a year, but never really, hardly ever anymore. But that was because God brought me to a point where I just knew, like, only God could save me from this. Sometimes in God's ways, it'll actually, things will look worse before they get better. But keep this in mind. He has come to save you. If he wanted to just remind you that you're overweight or you're not good looking or whatever, you know, like whatever your problem is, uh, you had that already. Jesus wouldn't have needed to come. And he, the last thing that, that's on God's mind is to rub your face in it. That's not in his heart at all. His heart is to set you free. But he does want you to come to a place where you can't see, you see clearly that the power to be free is not in you. And often that's the very point that you come to and then you get miraculously set free. The first time I ever experienced that was, of course, when I came out of being a drug addict. And I finally had to admit, after six months of, of God convicting me, you know, I got high many times a day and I usually used about $100 worth of drugs a day. And uh, God would be dealing with me to quit. Uh, and like every addict, I would try to make bargains with God. Like, I'll repent after the party Friday. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> and, uh, or, uh, you know, like we just got in this really high quality uh, this and that. And when it's all used up, then I'll repent. <laughs> you know, if you're putting off your obedience to the future, that's a good sign that you're probably addicted. And uh, so, uh, and you, usually you will bargain. And it was only when I came to a point where I said, God, I, not only can I not quit this stuff, I can't even want to quit this stuff. I don't want to quit this stuff. It's my whole life. I love it. I love it more than you. And then I was completely delivered from it within a couple weeks. You know, this Thanksgiving, I'll be uh, celebrating 45 years since I last did drugs. And I always say, I always tell my wife, I got a pretty good start on it now. <laughs> I'm hopeful that I can uh, uh, keep it going to, to, for another 25 years or so if the Lord grants me to live that long. 
Well, we got through, uh, of the eight genres of songs we're going to look at, we got through, how many? Five? Yeah, five. So we'll p- uh, pick it up with the other ones uh, next week. And if you haven't, uh, if you've missed some of these 930 teachings, uh, uh, see Stephen for the outlines. This, this will, you know, the Psalms, as, as we're, we are going to have one week, of just looking at what other Christians have said about the Psalms, but my, you know, I'll I'll tip my hat a little bit or tip, play my hand in advance. You know, Martin Luther said the Psalms contain the whole Bible, and almost all Christians have always agreed. One of the reasons why I'm doing this series on the Psalms is because if you get the series on the Psalms, you'll get more out of your Bible when you read it. Amen. 